Hi, I'm Joanne Woodson, a solo practitioner specializing in commercial leasing law. I've been a lawyer for a long time, and I know that there's a lot to wrap your head around when it comes to commercial leasing. The goal of my podcast, the Commercial Leasing Diva podcast, is to make your lives as commercial leasing professionals easier and more fun. In the podcast, I speak to other commercial leasing professionals who share their expertise so that we can all improve our commercial leasing game and better serve our clients. Hello, welcome to the Commercial Leasing Diva podcast. I'm Joanne Woodsum, your host, and I'm very excited about today's podcast episode with Scott Ellis, who's a managing director at Colliers International. Scott and I have known each other for a really long time. For about 10 years, we shared a landlord client. Scott specializes in um, office leasing in the San Francisco East Bay. He's based in Walnut Creek, California and he has a lot to share about current market conditions in that specific geographic region, which as we'll learn is very different from say downtown San Francisco. So welcome to the podcast and enjoy the episode. Welcome Scott to the Commercial Leasing Diva podcast. Um, In this series, we'll be speaking with real estate brokers about the current commercial leasing market, which of course is totally volatile and crazy and we all wish we had a crystal ball and could figure out what the heck was happening. Um, our special guest today is Scott Ellis, who I've known for, gosh, over 20 years, probably. We worked together on an asset for over a decade um, and very much enjoyed working together. Um, he's based in the East Bay. Uh, thanks for joining me today. And I thought we'd start, Scott, with you just describing a little bit about what your current leasing portfolio looks like? Uh, do you represent mostly landlords or tenants? Is there a particular sector, retail, office, indus- industrial that you tend to focus on? So personally, I represent almost 90% landlords. Okay. And that's what I've done for most of my, I hate to say it, but 40 years of doing this. And it's Walnut Creek Concord. So it's the North I-680 corridor. And it's funny, we're talking about the volatility now. We're used to this. This is probably, uh, I could say five cycles, but I'd say for sure four that we've been through. And it's ironic that we seem to do better in these down cycles out here, because this is when a lot of the companies in San Francisco that want to have that address and that visibility say, no, not not this cycle. We're moving back to where the employees are, uh, cheaper rent, closer to the employees. So we're seeing that now. But this time it's complicated by the fact that this work from home culture is, is shown up for the first time ever. And I'd have to say that we're not really seeing that here as far as that being permanent. And with all the layoffs that are starting to come, it's, it's pretty evident that the ones that are getting laid off are the ones that are not around the office, it's out of sight, out of mind. Oh, so, interesting. And the, uh, the average size deal for us here in Walnut Creek is like 5,000 feet. So we're having a lot of deals that are companies in Oakland that want to get the employees back in the office for San Francisco. So they'll make the employees happy by moving out to closer where they live. Right. uh, Shrink their headcount, but um, it's pretty active. You know, it might've been a 10,000 foot tenant that's now four. Um, But we're also getting some uh, net expansion from San Francisco. We just did a deal in Concord with the U.S. Immigration Court that leaves 75,000 feet out in Concord. And it wasn't a relocation, it was a net expansion. So they're just, it's a new use for that same right. 
division and uh, they're going to move in next year and that's going to be 20 courtrooms in our building. So a lot of government wow. and a lot of net downsizing, but we're getting them out here. So it sounds like I'm hearing you represent mostly landlords, mostly in the office sector. And despite what I'm seeing in San Francisco, which is enormous vacancy and very little deal churning, you're seeing the opposite. You're seeing a lot of deals because a lot of those folks are migrating out to the suburbs again to make appease employees who are like oh during remote work we don't have that commute we're very happy with it but employers are still of like we want office face-to-face -face time correct they've realized to be competitive you've got to have everybody together yeah yeah and when, so when the market's hot we're, we, we, we're dying because there's no space to lease and, yeah uh, so you have the opposite problem you, you have your, like your own micro economy going on there Yes. So one of the questions I've been asking a lot of people in other markets is, you know, it's a very pro-tenant situation now and the tide is turning pretty hard, especially with a very high vacancy rate in some of our urban areas. But and so one of my questions I ask is, so what are you seeing in terms of pro-tenant negotiations and letters of intent? Sounds like you're not necessarily seeing that. Well, tenant approval costs are so high now, that's what's dictating most deals. So if it's a deal that doesn't need a lot of work done the space, owners will probably do more free rent, but they got to keep the rent relatively close to where it's been. And right. they've got lenders to keep happy. So right. they are not, this is the landlord, is not really crazy about spending $85 a foot on a build right. out, especially when it's not something that could be reused if that right. tenant moves out. So, right. but it's mostly free rent and it's spread out. The right. other concession is they'll do shorter terms. So a lot of these tenants want to do a one-year deal or you've probably seen this too. Oh, wow, that's hard. Or a two-year deal. And owners will right. do it just to buy some time. Right. So it's just the flexibility that normally they wouldn't have done in the past. Right. But we actually had a couple right. spaces here in our building that had multiple suitors looking at the same space. Wow. Gosh, that's so different from San Francisco. <laughs> I've heard. I mean, it's San Francisco is becoming a ghost town, as I'm sure you're aware. It's a very mm -hmm. kind of challenging time. Um, so in that regard, some people watching this may not be aware of the direct correlation in terms of lease economics. And I always have to try and walk some of my clients who are not really aware of how this works. The relationship between base rent and a tenant improvement allowance. And I explained to my clients, you know, it's sort of like the landlord's making you a loan for the tenant improvements, but you're making loan payments with your base rent. So the, it's not like you're getting, you know, $100 a square foot in TI allowance and you won't see it reflected in the base rent number. How do you explain that to, to your, you know, I obviously represent the landlords, but when you have to negotiate that's with tenants. The owners aren't going to go broke doing a deal. So if it's going to be... $85 a foot, they've got to get what used to be a five-year term. Now they want seven or eight. Okay. And they won't do the termination rights. And it all depends on the landlord. I've got a client that I've had for 35 years and I'm in his building and we lease that. And we've also got some owners that bought right before COVID. So they paid a pretty high per square foot price. And of course the values have gone down. Right. They're probably at a disadvantage because you know their building's worth less than what they paid for it. And they don't want to invest a whole lot more cash into it. They're just trying to buy some time. Right. Where the owner who's got a 35-year track record, who's got a lower cost basis, can afford to be picky, but at the same time, their cost basis is lower. So they've got a little more room to invest and not hate to say it, but you know, lose money on each deal. So that's how right. they look at it. 
And right. most of these uh, newer owners have land, uh, lenders that are involved in the decision making. Right. So it's almost like each building is a separate market. And right. brokers know this, tenants know that. And the other thing is if you have a space that's pretty dated and the owner's not market readying that by putting in new LED lights, new carpet, new flooring paint, just to get ready to show, they aren't going to get leased where it seems like tenants like spaces that are almost ready to move into as far mm -hmm. as the lighting. And uh, those are the ones that are moving. So, right, right. Have you seen um, some of my landlords are really feeling the squeeze from lenders right now? Lenders who before had a lot of trust that the landlords, you know, could have kind of a hands off approach to the leasing aspect of it, unless it was a very large percentage of the building. After the pandemic, when the landlords were like cranking out these early lease termination agreements, um, the lenders have become, a, I've seen, more proactive. Are you seeing that in terms of the leasing aspect? Yes. Matter of fact, I, there's a lot of buildings that we work on that we will draft up a proposed response to an RFP for a tenant wanting to lease space in your building. And uh, we have to wait a week or two for the owner to have the lender approve it to go out. Wow. Right. And that's the newer and That purchaser. was not so common in the past that oh. the, the lender would be micromanaging at the letter of intent stage. Again, you know, if it was a 200,000 square foot building and you had a tenant coming in taking 90% of the space, that that's different. But to, to kind of micromanage at that level, wow, that's very interesting. I'll give you a couple of quick examples. There's a couple of buildings yeah. out here on the market for sale that normally, say three years ago, to sold for over 400 a foot. And now the, the owner wants out I don't want to say so badly, but they're pretty motivated that they're probably going to trade at just under 200 foot, less than half of what it was worth three years ago. Wow. Now, these are buildings where they couldn't lease them because they wouldn't invest the money on the market ready in the common areas and the spaces. So it's almost like it was self-inflicted. Right. Uh, uh, right. There's still, there's still money out there wanting to buy a good product, but they got to get it at the right price. Right. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Um, so part of what I wanted to talk about in this series is helping clients, both landlords and tenants, think proactively about the letter of intent stage of the transaction. And I know that we both have horror stories that we could share about letters of intent, um, where there are terms in there that just don't make sense. And a common, common mistake that I see, and I know you've seen, is brokers God love them, will often just take the prior letter of intent and duplicate it and not necessarily think through the nuances of the new transaction they're working on. So it might, the letter of intent might be dragging along some language that's not relevant, but everyone's going so fast, they just sign it, not understanding what's happening. So what are some of the more egregious problems that you've seen letters of an, at the letter of intent stage that you would call your landlord and say, are you really wanting to do this? It's mostly tenant improvements. Yeah. Uh, tenants want a turnkey build out and the owner wants to right. get very, very clear on what it is the tenant's asking for. And so if there's a, a signed letter of intent that needs to be completed to move forward, it's going to drag around for three weeks until the owner gets a plan from the tenant that they've signed off on that says, right. here's what we're committing to accepting if you build it out. <laughs> but it, it never ever gets to the point where the tenant submits a plan that says this is good enough because as soon as they submit it, they make changes to it. And the owner's saying, well, you, you just changed it. So I, I can't give you a commitment on a turnkey build out. So we'll give you an allowance. 
Right. And then, of course, the tenant says, well, how do I know how far my allowance is going to go? Right. So they want to get a price on it from a contractor who is so busy now that could take three weeks. So the biggest bog down is the tenant improvement part of the letter of intent. Right. Tenants don't want an allowance. Tenants don't want turnkey. So where do you find that happy middle? And right. Uh, it's an it's an right. evolving process as far as the plan. Right. So, for, so for people who may not be aware, the issue is that if the landlord's going to do a turnkey deal, that means I landlord promise to build you whatever you want, tenant, in the space. Well, that's a blank check. So at the letter of intent, we need to get really granular, and that is the anti-letter of intent, right? The, the letter of intent is not supposed to be granular. It's supposed to be just sort of generic terms like the base rent and how long the term is, et cetera. But the landlord is not going to want to sign a blank check. So you have to get granular. And what that means is the parties are going to have to spend money on architects, space planners, et cetera, because you need to have attached to the letter of intent as specific as possible what the landlord is committing to build. Um, and as you're saying, one way to say that is we'll build whatever you want, but it can't exceed $100 a square foot. But then the tenant has to go do its own due diligence to figure out if $100 a square foot gets them in the neighborhood of what they want. And a while ago, $100 a square foot seemed like a lot, but now it's not that uncommon. What are you, I mean, are you typically, for, and this is office, we're not talking about fancy lab space, just office. What are you typically seeing for? So here, here's what typically happens. Yeah. The owner doesn't want to have time kill all deals, which typically happens when you've got a tenant who's a commodity that you want to do a deal with. Right. You have to sit and wait three weeks. So they'll say, look, I'll agree to a turnkey deal, provided it's building standard finishes, materials, and electrical a lot of this. And then, of course, that's when you start, because you want to get the rent worked out. And the owner kind of makes an assumption based on what it is that you think the tenant wants, and they're not quite sure yet. So. Right. And then what always happens is, is a tenant comes back in with more than what they alluded they wanted in the way of a build out. And the owner says, well, no, that's not what we kind of agreed to, even though there wasn't a very specific agreement, because it's not really a letter of intent, it's a proposal that they'll sign off on. So that's where the negotiate happens. But you get the rent and the deal structure pretty much worked out before you get to that point. So, But if you tell a tenant, we can't do anything until we have a specific pricing, that could take three, four weeks. And by that time, yeah. you lost the deal, because there are too many right. other suitors found out about the deal and they're throwing proposals at them too. So it's it's right. a delicate juggling act, Joanne, as you probably remember. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. So you just mentioned you did a big government lease. What are the challenges? Because I've done government leases and I have to say they are not my favorite. The challenges of working with the government when it comes to TIs, because in the deal that I did, it really dragged the deal out. I'm going to say for months at the letter of intent stage because the government had all these regulations about the build out and they wanted the landlord to do the work and, but they have all like pages, you know, pages, hundreds of pages of detail about alterations. Luckily the government deal that we did and most of them are an allowance. Okay. For the build up, but where the, the awful part comes is where in addition to what you're doing in the space, you are committing to do all kinds of common area upgrades, uh, interior stairwell upgrades, uh, seismic upgrades, or right. engineering surveys. So it, it's not right. just the space. It, it, it's an open-ended checkbook for the balance of the building. So the government's requirements for access, seismic stability, uh, ADA is met. And that's an open-ended potential problem for the owner. 
So the owners that have done a lot of government deals before that already have those processes worked out are usually the ones that the government uses come to anyway, because they're already on records having done that. And they know you're not wasting the tennis time because they're not going to have those things. Because it's expensive to commit to those outside yeah, the space. Absolutely. So, but ours was a 20-year firm term, which solves a lot of problems. Yeah, yeah. A typical state deal is four years firm. It's an eight-year term with the right to cancel after four. So a four-year deal versus a 20-year deal firm, night and day different. So, right. But the, the so for those who may not understand what we're talking about is the capital improvements that the landlord is committing to make to the base building. They don't get that back from the tenant. That is an, a capital outlay that the landlord has to make to keep the tenant, to do the deal with a, a government tenant, because they're going to insist that all these base building specs be satisfied. So if you can capitalize it over 20 years. What are some of the worst mistakes you see clients making at the letter of intent stage? Well, it's funny you say that. We call it a proposal, and yeah. it's paper that says, here's what we're willing to offer you, and the tenant says, okay, I think right. it sounds good. Let's go to a lease, or they'll respond to it, and you go back and forth, but it's not, on the average deal, a letter of intent where you sign it, and it's, it's even though it's not binding. Or even binding, and the intent correct. is it's not binding. So it's, it goes, we try to go straight to a lease, Right. the biggest mistakes are when the tenant wants the landlord to sign this letter of intent. And it becomes like a lease negotiation. Right. So that drags on for a couple of weeks because there's language in there uh, specifically where if the landlord doesn't deliver the space by a certain date, the tenant can walk. And the landlord will typically say, I, I can't commit to that because there's so many things outside my control that could right. delay the deal. And the delivery is always pushed back. And the tenant wants it done by, say, like, say today's November 14th. They want to buy February 1st. You probably can't even get doors until April 1st now. There's such a delay. So right. the walk component can totally stop the deal from moving forward on the right schedule. And right. Atlanta says, I can't afford that. I could spend 90% of our allowance for the build out for your space. And then you walk at the last minute because one little door or a sink or a patch of carpet gets delayed. So yeah. the tenants want that. They say, well, I can't right. wait around forever because I got to get out of my right. other space. Right. So that's right. typically the biggest one. Yeah, I try to do a little leasing 101 with my tenant clients who have these unrealistic expectations. And I try to do it at the letter of intent stage and say, you know, if you think you're getting, it's a November 14, you think you're getting in by February 1, you, you, and we don't even have a letter of intent signed or agreed to yet. First of all, lease negotiations. Everyone's like, hurry up, hurry up. Yeah. And they say that, but then I sit you down and say, these are the 30 issues in this lease, my tenant. And you say, actually, I care about 25 of those issues. I do care. And I want to negotiate. And now you're six weeks into lease negotiation. And now you're up to February 1 almost. It's like you haven't even signed the lease yet. So I try to, you know, it's hard when people are hurry up, rush, rush. But I try to explain, listen, this all takes time. Everyone working on only your deal will still take time. It just does. And that is something that's really hard, especially in what you're seeing right now, where you know, people want to get these deals done very, very quickly. Um, but I wanted to go back with what you're saying. You're saying, so, you know, we don't sign the letter of intent. It's meant to be non-binding. But I find during deals that parties really look at specific language in the letter of intent and say, and there's a, a I call it a moral persuasiveness. Like it, it's not legally binding, but people are like, well, it was in the letter of intent. And so you have to do it. And if you don't, it, 
it can create a very bad feeling during negotiations, which can sour things pretty quickly. Is that something that you see? Yes. No, you're right. It's 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 one of those things where it's just never smooth. And right. we will respond to these proposals that are 11 pages long. And right. mostly everybody wants to know what the rent's going to be, how much parking you get, how much is the parking, uh, what are the increases, what's my tenant improvement allowance going to be. But then there's like eight other pages of my all-time favorite clause, which is indemnification. Not in the letter, but dead. Yes, it happens. <laughs> and uh, as a landlord broker, our typical response is we'll specify in the lease agreement. Right. And of course, tenants right. hate that, but it's like, well, let's just get the economics worked out. Then we get the legal lease worked out. Right. But you might have a tenant broker or a tenant attorney that says, no, we want to get that worked out now. And then you have to get our attorney involved and invest the time in negotiating the indemnification or right. waivers of subrogation or damage and destruction. It's like, come on, we'll get you a lease agreement that has our language in it. They want right. to see what it is. So it's just another time kills all deals problem you have. Right. And it's still there. Right. That leads me to my next question, which is uh, brokers and attorneys, when they get along, it can be a beautiful relationship. <laughs> And attorneys can really rely. I mean, I have conference calls. Well, I will turn to the broker, and especially it can be with the client management. So I have a client right now who, I mean, this is like unbelievable. They're, they're so out of touch with the market. And I, I keep trying to gently tell them like the other side is never, ever going to agree to this. This is like, and they're not leasing experts, you know. And so I turned to my broker during conference call and I said, so can you just help the client understand what you typically see? And that can work really well. As you know, attorneys and brokers often are, can be at loggerheads because uh, they perceive they have different interests and brokers can perceive attorneys as trying to slow the deal down and kill the deal. And of course, attorneys would have the opposite perception of brokers. What do you see as the key to like brokers and attorneys successfully working together on commercial leasing deals? So this isn't you because you were great and I loved working with you. Thank you. But the, th the thing we see most is that you have the deal terms agreed to the rent, the parking, uh, hours of operation. And then the lease goes from there to the tenant's attorney. And then you'll find the tenant attorney comes back and when they submit their comments, they've gone through and says, well, I think I can do better. I can get them better rent. And they start coming back and and modifying the economic terms. Oh. Most brokers really don't like it when the attorneys come in and, and don't just focus on the legal issues. Right. So again, that's not you, but that seems to be the biggest changes when the, the, the brokers and the tenant's attorney makes changes to things they weren't supposed to touch because they've already been agreed to. So right, right, right. And what I what I see is where it's not in the letter of intent. So I, I argue, um, especially when I'm the landlord, this should have been in the letter of intent. So if the attendant attorney comes back to me and says, uh, my client wants an option to extend. So, well, wasn't in the letter of intent. My tenant wants a cap on cam. Wasn't in the letter of intent. So do you see those types of things where they're, they're really overreaching? They're, they're putting things into the deal that are, are not addressed in the letter of intent on purpose. They weren't put in the letter of intent. What I see is, is when I'm landlord's counsel and the tenant's attorney comes and says, you know, I want these things that weren't addressed in the letter of intent. And, you know, if, it, if an option to extend isn't in a letter of intent, it's usually on purpose. It's not like someone forgot. 
It's that for, you know, maybe the landlord's trying to position the building for sale or whatever, and they don't want lease terms extending beyond X date. And so it's deliberately not in there. Same with cap on cam. Well, the parties may have discussed it. And this is where the broker can be very helpful and say, well, we talked about that and the landlord rejected it. And that's not why it's, that's why it's not on the lease because it wasn't in the letter of intent because we didn't agree to that. Mm -hmm. So typically the tenants broker would come back with that and not the attorney. I mean, that would have already been so, done. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. Point. Same so. with the rent. Obviously, we agreed on ten dollars a square foot. That's in the letter of intent. So, tenant's attorney, that's that's you don't get to touch that. Yeah. Yeah. So the biggest bog down is on the tenant improvements as far as lease negotiations, even after you have a concept plan. So, yeah. the working drawings will specify what down to each plug, each color of the the cover plate is going to be, but the owner's not going to spend the money to have the construction drawings done until you have a signed right. lease well the tenant right. wants to see in the lease exhibit okay what am i signing a lease and, and what's as far as what i'm going to be getting in the way of a build out that detail is not in there so right getting that negotiated to the point where the tenant feels comfortable with it is is the biggest time consumer of a lease negotiation that's why these as-is deals on a shorter term most right. owners like i'll take that i'm not spending 85 but i'm spending zero and i get one year of income versus a seven-year deal where i'm spending $85 a foot, right. no-brainer, right. if the lender will allow it. <laughs> the thing that, that frustrates me the most at the letter of intent stage is with the um, work letter agreement where they just say, well, landlord or tenant may do this. Like, you know, it's like, we'll decide during the negotiations. It, it, it so affects the structure of the lease, so many moving parts of the lease, if you don't know who's doing the build. Mm -hmm. And so that's one of my little buckets, like make your decision. And it's not, sometimes of course it does change during lease negotiations. It was a landlord bill. And then the tenant will sometimes get frustrated with the landlord and say, fine, I'll just do it. Give me an allowance. And then all of a sudden everything changes during the middle of lease negotiations. That certainly happens. Now from the landlord perspective, giving the tenant an allowance usually means it's going to add three times the amount of time to get it done. Because once the tenant has an allowance, they want to wait a second. Is it going to cover all the build out? And, and the other part is, if I don't spend it all, do I get to keep what I didn't spend? Right. right. So right. the best way to do it is say, okay, I, I understand what you want. I'll do a turnkey within reason, but I want the right to be able to say, well, no, that's not what I expected. If you're going to add all kinds of custom glass, custom right. millwork, upgraded right. flooring, pendant right. lighting, that's usually right. what kills the deal. And the bottom line is most of the time, the landlord has more experience in construction. Oh, totally. They've got a whole construction department. They know how to do this. They can roll it out pretty quickly. And of course, people always have to be cognizant of how, when does rent start? So if the landlord's doing a bill, you know, rent starts when the landlord's work is done. If the tenant's doing the bill, the landlord's going to say, I want a hard rent commencement date. I'm not waiting around two years for you to get your work done. Right. And also, and the a lot of tension want... and negotiation on that. And most owners won't allow the tenants contractor to do any work in the building they want their own subs because they know that all the systems and if they cut the wrong wire the whole building goes down people are out of work internet right. goes down so right right so then there's that aspect too just control over the building and the quality of improvements that are put in the building and etc yeah we could do a whole separate talk about work letters we'll have to do that one day now if i can say one thing though and to your sure. benefit because you are great at this it usually ends up coming down to where you have the attorney for the tenant and the attorney for the landlord get on a call and walk through all the outstanding issues together. And the landlord's attorney is 
not just the attorney for the deal, but they're also kind of a, 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 an advocate for the building. You're trying to promote to the tenant and the tenant's broker and the tenant's attorney. I like these people. I want to be in their building. But the mistake, which you've never done, I remember, when the landlord's attorney gets on there and just beats the out of the tenant's attorney because they're trying to show the landlord how tough they are and how good they are. But the tenant, after the call gets, I'm not good people. I'm not going in that building. So it's, right. it's almost like a promotion call versus a legal call when you get to that point. And you did a great yeah, job I mean, with I, that. I think that in the past, and I would say I personally am seeing the culture of commercial leasing negotiations change over the past 10 years at least. It's much more civil. Um, even when the market is in someone's favor very dramatically, back in the day when I started and when you started, People were pretty blunt and obnoxious about it. If it was a landlord market, take it or leave it. I'll look at your five comments. I'm not going to talk to you. You know, <laughs> it was yep. pretty aggressive and obnoxious. And I, I just feel like negotiations, in my experience, have become increasingly more civil, mm -hmm. um, which is to the benefit of everybody, I think. Um, and I, my personal philosophy, I represent, as you know, when I worked with you, I did mostly landlord work, but in the last 10 years, I do now probably 50% tenant and landlord. And what I always try to do is just put myself in the other person's shoes. So if I'm the landlord, I, I'm thinking if I'm the tenant, what's my problem and how is I landlord can help solve it. And I think that's the real switch I'm seeing is let's all solve the problem together with the limitations of each side. Um, and, you know, depends on your landlord client. There's a range, and I'm sure you have them too, a range of landlord's clients from our former mutual client, which was extremely conservative in terms of any kind of risk, to, I call them the cowboy entrepreneur landlords. You know, it's an individual wealthy investor in real estate, and he can or she can sort of set their own rules. And they have a lot more flexibility on some of these legal provisions than your more conservative landlord. And then on the other extreme, I have like the mom and pop landlord. And I feel like I'm kind of their, their friend advisor to help them negotiate that because often they just want to agree to everything <laughs> that I ask for. Oh, Starbucks wants it. I should just do it. Well, you know, I've negotiated with them. We could, there's room. Uh, so that's part of what we do, I think, is modulate our advice depending on who our client is. Couldn't agree more. Yeah. And if you have so a tenant one last quick in, question. This is just because I'm personally invested in the AIR lease form, my my nightmare lease form. Do you ever see it used in the East Bay for offices, the AIR form? No, it's funny you say that because it is the worst one. It, most of the buildings we have are larger lenders. They've got their own lease. Yeah, right. But even the smaller ones, the mom and pops have discovered or it's evolved in their experience as an owner to a short form lease where it might be seven, eight, nine pages, and it's pretty user-friendly, and they're shorter-term deals almost as is. So, no, the AIR, IIR form, I'm trying to think the last time I used it. It's probably been 10 years. Excellent. <laughs> so, but from what I've heard, it's still a challenge. Yeah, it's and it's, it's well often used, and it's often sold as, like, this will make your deal easier when, in fact, the worst couldn't be further from the truth. Um, so as we're wrapping up, is there any other final thoughts you might have on the world of commercial leasing as you're seeing it? Any crystal balls into the future? Obviously, you're you're burning and churning over there with deals in the East Bay in contrast to other places. Any any thoughts about what's going to happen next? 
Well, it's an interesting perspective where I am because the tenant has always been the, the commodity. They're, they're hard to get. They're, you're competing against every building in town. And even when you've got three or four that they're considering, there's probably five more unsolicited proposals coming in while you're in negotiation. So if you have a good team that understands that you know, the tenants has their needs, but you've got to know where you have your room to give or not give, it's pretty easy to make a deal, but you'd be surprised at how many owners don't really reach out and try to make the tenant feel welcome. A lot mm. of the comp buildings we're competing with, they've got someone back in New York. Uh, they work for a pension fund or they're right. a REIT and uh, they, they're slow to respond. The best way to make a deal is to be responsive and have a team that can, either, I mean, if you're going to say no, say no politely and say it like right. same day. Don't wait right. three weeks and then tell them no in an email. And right. uh, you had a chance to have, make that deal happen two weeks ago. So nothing's changed. It's still going to be, be where tenants are going to have their employees come in to some degree. That's not going away. And right. if you have a building that's safe and clean and the, the management, which I think kind of makes or break a, a tenant staying or leaving after their lease is up, yeah. is responsive, it, it's, it's, it's a game changer. We have so many buildings we compete against where the owner is aloof. They don't spend any money on just the basics, making the building clean, uh, having a good on-site management, on-site day porter. So we're still competing for the tenant. And I've never been in San Francisco where you've got multiple large tenants wanting to take down multiple floors. Hallelujah. I fantasize about that. <laughs> but I would say that was one of the things that we saw most profoundly during the pandemic. Where those landlords, I mean, you sort of really separated the sort of very civil, thoughtful, decent landlords from the other ones. And those landlords were reaching out proactively to tenants. How can we help you? How can we partner with you? You know, mm -hmm. if you're a restaurant, we see you're suffering. We want to keep you in the building. Let's work out something. You know, the law is the law. The courts are going the landlord way, whatever. We want to we want to help you as opposed to those landlords who are and you know they obviously have pressures too from lenders and investors and whatever, but just the ones that had the really great property management offices who were just like let's forget all the you know legalistic crap and how are we going to survive this and partner with each other to get through it, um, and that was very telling and I think that people will have long memories for that and hopefully that will you know rebound to those landlords in a positive way in the future. Um, so it's been a very interesting few years. I'm sure you've seen yeah. that as well. But we're predicting a pretty good year for office leasing out here in our market. And it's always been that way where because we're cheaper and we're closer to the residential markets and the right. employees don't want to get on BART and go all the way into San Francisco and the parking's free and there's plenty yeah. of it. Yeah. It's not to like. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Okay. Big plug for the East Bay. <laughs> <laughs> well, not just East Bay, but I mean, yeah, Vacaville, Reno, where you are, we're yeah. competing against them now in a way too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Reno's going gangbusters. They are doing very well. Uh, and, and again, it's sort of this tertiary market, but more and more companies are relocating here. And uh, so it, it, it's an interesting time. I, I, I'm not sure what's going to happen to the big urban centers. Certainly, San Francisco is suffering horribly right now, and I'm not sure that they've got a game plan. In place yet for how they're going to turn it around so that's to the benefit of of your market <laughs> right and we're close yeah. to home 
Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, Scott, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. I really appreciate it. Well, this is a great idea. I really appreciate you inviting me to be a part of it. <laughs> okay, great. Well, thanks again, Scott. And uh, hopefully we'll touch base again soon. Joanne, appreciate it. Good to see you again. It's been a while. All righty. Nice to see your Bye. smiling face again. Thanks, Joanne. Thank you. Bye-bye. I'm Joanne Woodsum. Thanks for listening to the Commercial Leasing Diva podcast. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, please share it with others, post about it on social media, rate and review us, like and subscribe. You know the drill. The podcast is produced and edited by Matthew Salanoa. The Commercial Leasing Diva podcast is sponsored in part by Commercial Leasing Law Seminars. If you want to learn more about commercial leasing, and why wouldn't you, please check out my e-courses by visiting my website, www.jleasinglaw.com. And right now we have three courses, two on the dreaded AIR lease form and drafting the addendum, and then a five-week course on commercial leasing basics, which takes a deep dive into letters of intent for commercial leases. Hope to see you in one of the classes. Thank you so much again, and we'll see you next time.